0: Now we pray, Holy Spirit, would you come, would you breathe life into your word to us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we were just uh, talking about with the kids, uh, about the well-known parable of the prodigal son, the story that Jesus told to illustrate the incredible grace, mercy, and forgiveness that our Father in heaven shows each one of us when we repent, when we turn from our sin and turn back to him. Um, And as I was talking about with him in his letter to the church in Rome, uh, Paul has been explaining to believers how God offers us this forgiveness as a free gift. But that because God is a just God, as we were reading earlier on in Romans, forgiveness isn't just a matter of ignoring our sin. Forgiveness is only free because the price has already been paid. Jesus paid the price for our sin to free us from slavery to sin, and that price was his life. This week, as I was reading from some of N.T. Wright's writing on the book of Romans, I was struck by this potential sequel that he offered, that I shared with the kids, uh, to the parable of the prodigal son, asking us to imagine the son who was forgiven sitting there and remembering As Wright puts it with a happy sigh, the day he came up the road and his father came running to greet him, and he thinks, suppose I did it again? Why not help myself to enough things to survive, run away for a few weeks, and then play the penitent and come back again? Maybe I'll get another party. And Wright suggests that when we think about this in the context of the parable of the prodigal son, It may sound absurd, even unthinkable. But in reality, it's exactly the kind of thinking that most of us have entertained. This is a question that I'm sure many of us have asked ourselves or wondered about in our Christian lives, isn't it? If my sins are going to be forgiven, why can't I just go on sinning? Is it okay to sin on purpose? And Paul begins the section of his letter that we're looking at today by presenting a form of this question. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now this was a question that many in the early church, as well as many opposed to the early church, often asked. Jewish leaders presented this question to point out a flaw that they thought they'd found in the teaching of this new Christian movement, that Christian teaching of salvation by grace, through faith, and not through the law, can't be correct, it can't be true, because it appears that it is teaching people to continue to sin. That it is teaching people that since God's love reaches us while we are still sinners, should we not continue to be sinners so that God's love can go on reaching us? Or if God loves to forgive, why not give him more to forgive? as a gift? Yeah,. You, what? Now again, per Paul's early opposition presented this reasoning to try to show that Christian teaching was flawed, that it contradicted itself, and that therefore it couldn't be true. Their intention wasn't to offer an excuse to sin. However, throughout history, and certainly still today, There are some who do take Paul's teaching on grace and wrongly interpret it and apply it to suggest that if God accepts us as we are, we should accept ourselves just as we are as well and therefore need never change. This understanding can then also be used to rationalize continuing to live a life of sin. Now this approach to the gospel that we do see today, is nothing new. It's been around for as long as people have been receiving and interpreting the gospel, and it has been given the name antinomianism, the belief that since God saves people by grace, it doesn't matter how we live, that if forgiveness is guaranteed, we have the freedom to sin as much as we want to, so that one famous philosopher two centuries ago, Heinrich Hein, is known to have declared on his deathbed, It's fine. God will forgive me. That's his job. And so Romans chapter 6 verse 1 begins by addressing this common question. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? But in Romans chapter 6 verse 2, Paul provides his clear, concise, forceful answer. By no means. Of course not. Paul found the reasoning behind this question completely inconsistent with the gospel, inconsistent with salvation's purpose, which he will go on to explain in his letter to the church, is to produce holy lives. Up until this point in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, in the first five chapters, Paul's been discussing justification, how law does not and cannot conquer sin, but that humanity can be saved from death and sin, by grace, through faith, alone. And last week we discussed Christ's ultimate triumph over Adam's sin. But Paul now turns from discussing justification to discussing sanctification, the process of change that God makes in our life as we continue to grow in our faith. What it means to be dead to Adam, but alive to Christ. And in verse 4, Paul shares that we were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul's explaining the change of status that occurs when we become Christian. How we all begin life in one type of humanity, in Adam, slaves to sin and death, but through baptism die to that old life. We are buried, but are then reborn to new life in Christ as we emerge from the water. And Paul's explaining that we should never think of ourselves in the old way, Again, however, if we're honest, it often feels like we haven't left the old life behind, doesn't it? It often feels like we're in this kind of no man's land, halfway between Adam and Christ. Not quite where we need to be or where God wants us to be just yet. But scripture tells us that the way we feel and the way things truly are aren't necessarily the same. That we are now in Christ. And that this means, as Paul explains, that what is true of him is true of us. This is one of Paul's central teachings throughout the book of Romans, throughout all his other writings, that since Jesus Christ represents his people, what is true of Christ is, not just will be, is true of us. And so Paul says in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like His, What is true of Christ is true of us. And what is true of Christ ever since his resurrection is that he is alive and will never die again because he conquered death and death no longer has any power over him. He also didn't come back to the same life As before. Through death, his old body, his old self was buried, but when he emerged from the grave, it was to a new bodily form. And Paul's explaining that our baptism is the outward symbol of this same inward reality. Being under the water symbolizes being buried with Christ, emerging from the water symbolizes the inward reality. Of being raised to a new life with Christ, with a new status, a new identity, and a new purpose. And Paul shares this reality to illustrate how and why the gospel does not lead to more sin. Because those who belong to Christ and are in Christ and united in Christ have died to sin. But what exactly does that mean? How do we die to sin? Is Paul arguing that our baptism magically destroys our desire or ability to sin? For those of you who have been baptized, you know the answer is is no. It doesn't just magically go away. But what Paul is getting at, as he explains in verse 6, is that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And what does that mean? If we've been united with Christ, the power that sin used to hold over our life is defeated. The consequences of that sin to which we were bound are defeated. Death is defeated. And this means, as Paul has already stated in his letter, That through faith in Christ, we're able to stand before God, guiltless and righteous. And he offers us the free gift of life with him. Not the same old life, but new, eternal life. What it doesn't mean is that God then sends us out into the world as robots, who no longer have free will or the ability to make wrong choices. And the reality is that there are many times when we will still feel like sinning, and sometimes we do. What Paul is saying is that now things are different, because we are changed. Before we were were saved, we were slaves to our sinful nature. We had no choice, but now we can choose to turn from our sin, turn to Christ, and live for Him. So Paul isn't suggesting that Christians are robots who are reprogrammed so that they don't or won't sin at all anymore, but rather, as he continues in verse 9, that death no longer has mastery over us, that sin and death no longer have dominion, power over us. And Paul's now beginning to explain what this means to us in our daily lives. That the normal pattern of life for Christians shouldn't be returning to our old ways, remaining stuck in our old ways, like the example of the prodigal son, asking for more money, going out and partying some more. But rather a progressive growth in sanctification, growing in spiritual maturity as well as in obedience to God that we demonstrate in our daily lives in thought, word, and deed. Paul is explaining that this is what it means to live in accordance with the change of status that we've received as a free gift by grace through faith and through our union with Christ's death and resurrection to new life in baptism. And that this requires that we recognize this change and take steps to bring our actual lives into line with the person we have already become. That this change isn't all automatic. That some of it requires intention on our parts. So again, as I was reading N.T. Wright this week, he uses the example of how when someone gets married, they may not feel very different on the inside. But a change has occurred in their lives, to which they must now conform. Promises have been made. And though those promises can be broken, they can't be unmade. And hopefully, who those of us who have taken marriage vows, as Becky and I did, 18 years ago today... <laughs> Hopefully, we do so with the intention that we will make changes to the way we're living our lives, that we're no longer just going to be pursuing our old plans, desires, and goals that were focused solely on ourselves, or probably focused a lot on finding a wife. But rather that we now desire to live a new life with and for our spouse. And the same is true when we make the decision to follow Jesus, to give our lives to Him. This means that we no longer just pursue our own old plans, desires, and goals that were focused solely on ourselves, but rather that we now desire to live a new life with and for God and for His glory. When we commit our lives to God, things may not feel particularly different. But we should act different. And this change in our actions is intentional. And this is why, as our passage concludes in verse 11, Paul explains that we should count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. What does this mean? The word count... Is translated from the Greek word logosomai, and it can be translated as to consider, to reckon, or to calculate, or take account of, or take into account. So, an example that's sometimes given is that it's like when we're counting how much money we have, maybe in our piggy bank. We may not know how much is there until we've finished all the calculations. But the counting doesn't change how much money we already had. All it does is make us aware of what was already true all along. What Paul is really saying is that in all we do, we should calculate what is already true of us. That we should always take into account, always remind ourselves who we really are. Who we already are. That we are no longer of adam that our old sinful nature is dead that we are dead to love for and bondage to sin because of our union with christ bearing this in mind taking this into account should help us whenever we're presented with or tempted to ask ourselves is it okay to sin just a little bit on purpose because god's gonna forgive me anyway Is it okay to sin so that grace may increase? Because as we see in God's Word, the answer is, no, of course not. By no means. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we do gather together each and every week, so thankful for the free gift of grace, mercy, and forgiveness that you offer all of us. Will you also teach us to accept it with gratitude and the knowledge that we have now turned away from who we were and turned to who we are, united with Christ Would we always remind ourselves of this, take it into account, bear it in mind, in every thing we do, that we are not slaves to sin, but children of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.